to Mark chapter 4. This is the text that Pastor Kirk read. This is our fifth and final message on what the Bible says about fear. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, we're not able to take an exhaustive look, not in five weeks, uh, at what the Bible says. But I hope that you're able to see your heart more clearly why you fear. Is it a fear of God, or is it a fear rooted in self, a fear of not getting something, or a fear of losing something, fear from self-preservation? And so let us walk alongside each other to discuss, to help, to care for each other, because this is what a church family does. This is iron sharpening iron. This is how we make disciples. This is how we care for each other. This is love. Next week, what I'm thinking of doing, uh, as Pastor Kirk said, he's going to uh, be preaching, so he'll be in a pulpit, I'll be in Sunday school, and I was planning to resume Jeremiah. What I think I'm going to do next week is take a week, and if more weeks would be beneficial, of just having some conversation in Sunday school about fear. Are there any questions? Are there any um, uh, concerns about how do we identify this? And so we'll take next week in Sunday school walking through this. And just to mention, uh, a number of people have asked about Lou Priolo's booklet on fear. Uh, this is what they look like. I've got about, well, not about, 10 copies uh, of them. This is the newer-looking uh, cover. This is the older uh, cover. Both are the same. Uh, but uh, Lou Priolo's booklet on fear breaking its grip. The text that Pastor Kirk read in our text for this morning is a story. It's a true account of what happened on a lake some 2,000 years ago. This morning, I want us to put ourselves in this text. And I'm going to talk about it in two ways. And you see this in your notes. What is happening, what was happening, I should say, before our story. So that's the first thing that we're going to talk about. And then secondly, the terrifying event on the lake. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our focus. What happened, what does it mean, and what is the implication for us? And then we'll see the main point at the end. So first, what happened before they took the boat out onto the lake? This event is described by three of the gospel writers. Matthew, Luke, and of course Mark, our text. And I believe that Mark is Peter's description of events. I believe Mark's gospel is Peter's description. We want to also keep in mind that the gospels are not always chronological. So what was going on before this near disaster in the lake? Jesus had already relocated his ministry headquarters from Nazareth where he grew up to Capernaum. Nazareth is located in northern Israel in Galilee. It's on the northern ridge of the Jezreel Valley. Capernaum is in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. They're roughly about 18 miles apart. Nazareth is at 1,400 feet of elevation. So it's elevated. It's at 1,400 feet. 
Capernaum is 700 feet below sea level. So about a 2,100 foot difference between where Nazareth is and where Capernaum is. And this is going to come into play later in our story. At the end of Mark chapter 3, we see the first public rejection of Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders. Matthew tells us that Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Mark doesn't mention this, but Matthew does. The religious leaders accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan. Then the religious leaders ask Jesus for a sign, and Jesus refuses. His mother and brothers come, and Jesus declares the primacy of spiritual relationships over physical relationships. All of that happens at the beginning of this day. Then, that same day, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee, and really more of a lake to us. We would think of it as a lake. He begins to teach, and again, a very large crowd gathers. So he gets out into a boat to teach the crowd, and they're seated on the upward slope of the land. It's, it's almost like an acoustical bowl. He's down on the water, and they're sloped upwards, sitting on the slope of the land. Jesus begins teaching in parables, short stories that teach one lesson. That's what a parable does. A short story that teaches one lesson. And Jesus says why he teaches in parables, so that they may hear and not understand. In the context, it seems that he is referring, referencing the religious leaders that they may not understand. Jesus teaches in parables to the very large crowd, and we see these parables in Mark 4 right up to our story in verse 34. Now in Matthew, in Matthew 13, we see additional parables that Jesus taught this day to that very large crowd. Matthew records them in Matthew 13. Then that same day, so continuing in the same day, in Matthew 13, Jesus leaves the crowd. So he was on the boat teaching the large crowd who were sitting on the land. He leaves the crowd, goes into a house in Capernaum, possibly Peter's house. For those of you who've been in Israel, we've seen where they think Peter's house is located. Jesus gets away from the crowd to explain the meaning of the parables privately to his apostles. And his parables all focus on one thing. The mysteries of the kingdom of God. He's explaining the mysteries of the kingdom of God to the 12 apostles. He's teaching and explaining to them the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Then, that same day, when evening comes, all of this has transpired on this same day, when evening comes, Matthew 8 and our text in Mark 4, verse 35. that tells us that another crowd begins to gather around Jesus. So this was Jesus' day. I say all of this to paint a picture for you so we understand the story. This was Jesus' day. He heals a demon-possessed man. He debates and is rejected by the Jewish religious leaders. He has a brief interaction regarding his mothers and brothers. He teaches a very large crowd, now in parables. He privately disciples the apostles on the meaning of the parables. He goes from the house back down to the lake, and again a crowd begins to press in on him. This is his day. And it leads to 
the terrifying event on the lake. What happened? What does it mean? And what is the implication for us? A friend's comments and and my discussion with him have been very beneficial in this text. Verse 35. Jesus has already had a long day. It's night. It's evening. He wants to be alone with his 12 apostles. The crowds are forming again. And he says, let us go over to the other side in order to leave the crowd. If God incarnate says to you, get in this boat with me, we're going over to the other side of the lake, where do you think you'll end up in the morning? Verse 36. As many as seven of the apostles are fishermen. They spent their lives navigating this very lake. Jesus says, let us go over to the other side. Let us go from the northwest corner over to the eastern side. But the apostles are the boatsmen. They're the navigators. They're the ones who are going to take Jesus. So they prepared the boats and they took Jesus just as he was, tired, exhausted from the day of ministry and all the crowds. Jesus is truly man. And other boats came with them. The crowd followed. The other boats also went through the storm. When you are going through storms, so are other boats. Your storm is not a unique experience. Again, I think Mark is really Peter's recounting. Hear what Peter says in 1 Peter 5 about suffering not being unique. This is 1 Peter 5. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Your brethren, your brethren had the same experiences of suffering. Verse 37. Remember the Sea of Galilee, this lake, is 700 feet below sea level. 700 feet below sea level. North of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon. And it's approximately about 9,000 feet in elevation. The sea is in a basin. It's in a bowl. And so what happens is the cool, dry air from the mountains descends and the warm, wet air from the lake rises and they end up colliding with each other. And boom, you have a storm. And that's what happens. In the Sea of Galilee, it happens violently and frequently and without warning. These violent winds can whip the sea into a fury. And that's what happened in our story. Mark uses two words, fierce gale. The meaning being great 
and loud and violent. This is how he describes the wind. Have you been in a loud, noisy environment that continues and continues and continues? It brings back memories of being a Chuck E. Cheese when it was packed. I've never been in battle. I've read enough accounts from veterans who have talked about the continual noise of the artillery, the machine guns, the rockets, the tanks, how the continual noise is unnerving to them. The waves are breaking over the sides of the boat. The boat is filling with water. The apostles are probably frantically trying to bail water out. They are wet. They are soaked. It's loud. It's chaotic. They're not able to keep up. You're in a boat filling quickly with water. It's pitch dark except for flashes of lightning. It's loud from the thunder, from the waves hitting against the side of the boat. The boat's filling with water. The waves are tossing the boat. They're tossing you from side to side. You're soaked. What comes out of your soul? What comes out of your soul? Verse 38. There's a chi here at the beginning of the verse, the Greek word chi, K-A-I. The NASB, the NASB does not translate it. The ESV rightly does as but. It's a contrast. In contrast to the chaos of the storm, in contrast to the chaos that's going on in the boat, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. Even though he's waterlogged, He's the picture of peaceful serenity. Mark records that they woke Jesus. I imagine that impetuous Peter had to be one of the they that woke Jesus. Matthew records them saying, save us, Lord. Luke records, master, master, we are perishing. Mark records, teacher. In the chaos and the noise, one is yelling, Lord. One is yelling, master. One is yelling, teacher. In the noise and the chaos, they would have had to raise their voice over the storm. And so they yell loudly at God incarnate. Do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? They doubt Jesus. They accuse him of wrong, that he is not a caring Savior. In the middle of near death, what came out of their soul? They are willing to sin to save their life. They are willing to sin to save their life. I'm willing to charge God with wrong. I'm willing to charge God with not being a caring God in order to save my life. What comes out of your soul in the midst of suffering? 
What comes out of your soul when you have a great concern about what could happen? Do you doubt God's goodness? Do you doubt his sovereignty? Do you doubt his wisdom? When we doubt God, when I doubt God, it's generally in one of these three areas. We doubt his goodness, his sovereignty, or his wisdom. Does God care what's good for me? Can he bring to bear what's good for me? Does he really know what's good for me? Because I see this and I want it. And he's not giving it to me. Do you see what's going on in your heart when you're in the middle of a storm? We're at, vo- at, we're at verse 38 in the narrative. We're at verse 38. What is the apostle's greatest problem at this point? What is the apostle's greatest problem? That they are about to die? Or their doubt of God? Their doubt of his goodness? Does he even care? What's their greatest problem? Verse 39. Rebuked. It's the same word as Mark 9 when Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 4 gives a sense of what is happening. Gives a sense of what Mark is expressing. Ecclesiastes 8 4. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? Jesus is the king. He is authoritative. No one, no one has the right, the authority, the power to say to Jesus, what are you doing? He alone has the right and the power to do what he wishes. And he is good. Jesus' response to the twelve demonstrates what Jeremiah, what God said in Jeremiah 5.22. Jesus' response to the twelve demonstrates what God said in Jeremiah 5.22. Do you not fear me? Do you not fear me? I control the oceans and all of creation. And Jesus says to the wind and the seas, be still. The words he used are much stronger than that. Better understood as be muzzled or be silent. The mere words of Jesus were enough. He said two words in the Greek, the force of which is put a muzzle on it and keep it on. That's what he said to the wind and to the seas. And the howling wind was silenced. The towering waves vanished. Now, if you've been on water, you know this. When the wind blows and the waves start to roll, when the wind dies down, what happens to the waves? They keep rolling for a period of time. Not here. 
They're completely silenced. It became perfectly calm. The lake became like glass in an instant. God controls nature and people. He can still both. Psalm 65, verse 7 and 8. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples? They who dwell throughout the earth stand in awe of your signs. And our story continues in verse 40. Who says to a person who almost drowned to death, why are you so afraid? Who says that to a person who almost drowned to death? Is Jesus cruel in this moment? Or is he kind? In verse 40, when Jesus asks, why are you afraid? He uses a different word than in verse 41 when the apostles became very much afraid. Jesus uses a different word in verse 40. In fact, it's the same word that's found in Revelation 1.8. Let me read Revelation 1.8. But for the cowardly, that's the word. Mark 4, verse 40. Revelation 1.8. But for the cowardly, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Cowardly. That's the word that Jesus used in verse 40. Paul uses the same word in 2 Timothy 1.7 when he's writing to Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity. That's the word. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Timidity. Verse 40, the word afraid is the word for cowardice. A person who lacks the courage to do or endure difficult or unpleasant things. So what Jesus says to the twelve is, why are you cowards? To those who almost died from drowning. Then, Jesus connects their fear, their timidness, to faith, to doubt, to unbelief. Mark, which you know I think is Peter, records Jesus saying, No faith. Matthew records little faith. Luke, where is your faith? I agree with the commentator that Jesus probably said little faith, which in Peter's mind, which is what Mark is recording, is the equivalent of no faith. And first Peter is Peter reflecting back and judging Mark for Peter. When Peter writes 1 Peter, he's reflecting back to what happened in Mark 4 and making a judgment. 
Because in 1 Peter 5, Peter writes, Be firm in your faith, knowing that the experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren. After you have suffered for a little while, probably didn't feel that way to them when they were in the middle of the storm. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will perfect and strengthen you. God will perfect and strengthen you. As I think about why I do not like to suffer, it's rooted in my love of self. It's what Paul said in Ephesians 5. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. I love myself. I love my flesh. I nourish it and cherish it. I don't want anything to happen to me. Not anything bad. I do not want to suffer. I do not like suffering. What could cause suffering or pain or discomfort? I don't like it. I don't want it. And my heart can be cowardly. And Jesus connects to doubt and weak faith, my cowardly fear. Notice that the apostles' physical proximity to Jesus did not keep them from fear, from doubt, from timidity. Notice also that the fear did not come from outside of them, but from inside. Jesus confronts what is inside. Jesus confronts their lack of faith. Is Jesus cruel in this moment? Or is he kind? What determines which it is? If suffering is the greatest threat, Jesus is most cruel. If unbelief, doubt, is the greatest threat, he is most kind. Verse 41. They became very much afraid. The phrase literally in the Greek, with mega fear they feared. With mega fear they feared. This is not the same fear as cowardly fear. Mark uses a different word. Whatever fear they had of drowning, they now have mega fear. Greater fear at their unbelief, their weak faith being exposed. They have a greater fear because their weak faith has been exposed. Their fear now is from the awe caused by the revelation of almighty power. The apostles had a definite problem in the storm. Potential drowning. Let's not minimize that. That's a significant problem. But it was diminished. Their problem of drowning was diminished by the fact that they did not trust Jesus. They did not believe him. 
Did he not tell us that we were going to go to the other side? And we didn't believe him. We didn't trust him. When are you like the disciples? You're in a storm. Many of you are in the middle of one now. You think Jesus doesn't care. You think he's asleep. You have to yell at him to wake him up. To get him to bring you relief. And he hasn't brought it yet. But if you just want relief, you will find Jesus saying he wants you to fear him, to trust him, to follow him, to believe him. A friend shared this illustration. God uses the chemotherapy of affliction to expose the cancer of sin. Chemo is bad. Cancer is worse. If I have cancer, I sign up for chemo. You and I have the cancer of sin. God uses the chemo of affliction to reveal and kill the cancer of sin. When you fear, whether it arises within you from circumstances of your own making or whether it arises within you from circumstances not of your making, your cure is the same. Turn to God. Fear Him. Cling to Him. Run to Him and do what He says. Don't be paralyzed in your fear. Don't run away from God. Run to Him and do what He says. What does He call me to do as a Christian man, as a husband, as a father, as an elder in this church, as a pastor, when I fear Run to Him. And what does He call me to do? Last week we read Psalm 56. There's so many places that we could go in Scripture, like Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip even into the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, we will not fear. Why will we not fear? Isaiah Isaiah talks about this. In Isaiah 42, verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Why will we not fear? Because we turn to God. We fear God when we are bruised. He will not break us. He will not extinguish us. We will pass through the waters. And the waters will not sink us. For years, 
after I became a Christian, I would read verses like this. And I would think of how this applies to me. If I turn to God, he will deliver me from my suffering. He will take it away. He'll take away my physical or emotional suffering. It's as if I was in the boat on the lake saying, I might drown and my greatest need is for the storm to stop or to be pulled out of the storm so that I do not drown. That is how I read these verses for many years. And it's a temptation in my heart today. Lord, what's good for me is for you to make this storm stop. Make my troubles stop. This is hard. Turn to Psalm 107, if you would. Psalm 107. I'm going to be paraphrasing and summarizing verses 23 through 31. I'm just going to go through this. It may be helpful for you to see it. I'm going to go through it in a summary fashion. Psalm 107, verse 23. The psalmist is speaking of men who do business on the sea. They're used to being on the sea. They're sailors. They do business on the sea. They've seen the great works of the Lord. In verse 25, the Lord spoke and raised up, what? A stormy sea. God raises up a storm. And the men's souls melted. They were at their wit's end. Verse 28, then... Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still. He hushed the waves of the sea. Verse 30. So he guided them to their desired haven. He guided them to their desired haven. And so they gave thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. God raises up a storm. God sends his son and the disciples into that storm. Is he still good? Yes. Yes. He is good. God is fully good. He can do no evil. God could stop any occurrence of evil if he wanted He's all-powerful. He can stop anything. And God can and does use evil to accomplish his will. But evil is never God's final purpose or goal. He ordains it for a greater good. God ordains evil for a greater good, namely our good and his glory. God ordained the death of Jesus Christ 
for a greater good. An evil that God ordained. In fact, I would say the most evil of evils. God ordained for a greater good our salvation, which is His glory. In Psalm 107, God commanded the storm. He ordained the storm. God is the ordainer of evil, but not the author of evil. God does not turn evil into good, but he uses evil for good. He does not turn evil into good. He uses evil for good. We still call evil, evil. In Psalm 107, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, which is a word for pressure. So the Lord guided them to their desired haven. That's where the Lord guided them to. He guided them to their desired haven. What is your desired haven? What is your ultimate haven? Is it not heaven? If you're diagnosed with cancer and God brings a cancer cure, you would exalt him. You would give thanks to him. The only way that you will ever thank God for the storm is if you know that you have cancer. You and I have the cancer of sin. God causes the chemo of affliction. He uses it to reveal and kill our cancer of sin. This is our glorious progressive sanctification. So now I'll get to the main point of the narrative. Our weak trust of God is a greater enemy than anything that can happen to us. Repent and fear God. Our weak trust of God is a greater enemy than anything that can happen to us. Repent and fear God. Jesus wants his disciples to thank him for the storm because they now see that their greater, greater enemy is not the storm, but doubt. And the opposite of doubt is trust. They had the cancer of doubt and the chemo of the storm revealed it. When my friend and I were walking through this narrative, he, he came up with his own title, maybe, depending on what translation you have. So I'm, I'm back in Mark 4. Uh, the NASB has Jesus stills the sea. I think that's a pretty common. The editors uh, put that in. He came up with his own title, not Jesus stills the sea. Here's his title. I think it's kind of catchy. Jesus commands the storm, controls the storm, calms the storm, so that he may confront his disciples of their unbelief and create in them a greater fear of God than the fear of drowning. That's how he uh, subtitled, kind of like a Puritan subtitle, uh, for this text. 
Jesus commands the storm. He controls the storm. He calms the storm so that he may confront his disciples of their unbelief and create in them a greater fear of God than their fear of drowning. Oh, how I want that. I want to grow in my fear of God so that I do not fear what happens in my life, even things as catastrophic as drowning. When we fear, when we fear what can happen, what might happen, what could happen, what will happen, what has happened, when we have fear of what happens to us, we need to see that we have a greater enemy. Our weak trust of God. In Mark chapter 9, the man with the epileptic son cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Oh, that is the cry of my heart. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, help my unbelief. Help my weak faith. I believe. This is a good prayer. It acknowledges where we all are. It acknowledges that we need God to believe as we ought to believe. We haven't arrived. And the storms reveal that to me. My dear friends, this is what I want to press on you. To ask the Lord to reveal your heart to you when you fear. That you would ask the Lord when you're in the midst of fear Father, am I looking at the wrong problem? Am I looking at what might happen instead of looking at you? Is my fear rooted in myself and what might happen to me instead of having a fear of God? Am I in the boat thinking my greatest problem is drowning when my greatest problem is my love of self which causes me to doubt God. Is my greatest problem my weak faith? Grow in your fear of God. Grow in your fear of God and you will grow in your trust of God. Fear God. Trust God. And do what he calls you to do. Would you pray with me? Lord, Lord Jesus, thank you for your gift of faith. I pray that for every one who has rejected you, who has not trusted in you, in your death, your resurrection, and your reigning in heaven, that they would trust you this morning with a saving faith. 
And Father, for those who you have given the gift of faith, I thank you. Would you sustain our faith? Strengthen our faith? Deepen our faith? Don't let it fail. Make our faith in you the power of our life so that in everything that we do, you get the glory and we grow in our fear of you and seeing your glory. Amen.